Steven, James, I have the 180th question for you. We've had, we've had like, a, how many, what number are we on? This is 175. Steven, I have the 175th question for you. It's like, it's like, what is 175? Is that like a bi sesquicentennial? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it is, it's got to be something, doesn't it? Hang on. Yeah. Hang on. Quadra sesquicentennial. Uh, We're using Google. See, Google makes you smarter because we would never even like know this word without Google. Right? No, but you wouldn't know this. Well, it doesn't necessarily make you smarter. It makes you, it gives you access to, it does allow you to ask questions that you probably wouldn't have bothered asking before. It gives you more facts. What word in English means 175th anniversary? Demi, semi, septcentennial or Demi, semi? Quarto, septcentennial. All right, I'll go with quarto. They all trip right off the tongue. Yeah. All right, so here it is. Is it better to throw out the first number in a negotiation or wait for them to throw out the first number? Oh, because I have differing opinions number, on this. First number. Well, so 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 classic negotiation advice is wait for them doctoring? to throw out the right. first number. But I think to myself, better for me to anchor the first number than to let them anchor the first number. Like if I throw out like a billion, you know, then they're thinking, oh my God, he's thinking so high. I better like not, you know, disappoint or, you know, or a hundred dollars, whatever. So, so, but everybody always says, oh, wait for them. Be Who's qu-. everybody? People who have given me a negotiation advice in the past. Who are they? And what's their evidence? Uh, like bankers and stuff like what's that. What's their evidence? What's their counterfactual? I don't know. Nobody's done. As far as I know, I don't know any scientific research on this. Well, there's a ton of scientific research on anchoring, and it all suggests that the anchor setter wins the day. But what if your anchor is too low? Like, there's psychology to it as well. Right. Like, what well, if you don't have a, enough confidence that's a different in issue. yourself? That's not a negotiation issue. That's a valuing issue. Okay, so how do you know how to value something so your anchor is correctly? I, I don't know. I'm not a business person, but... Well, when I have to, when I have to, you negotiate. You negotiate like Freakonomics Radio. Or you negotiate your book deals. You negotiate as an individual, which yeah, is sometimes I, harder. I would always rather set the anchor. Look, I'm not saying it's riskless because, yeah, you could price it too low. Um, the other thing to do is, you know, have a bake off, have some kind of Dutch or other auction. You know, one thing I did that worked out pretty well one time, which I'm always surprised that more people don't do, is I was selling a house, and a lot of people who sell a home will pick a realtor or a real estate agent and then have that person help them set the price because you'd think that like of all the things that a real estate agent is supposed to do or help you do, one of the most important by a long shot is set the appropriate price. And that's important for a lot of reasons. A, money is important to people and B, the initial price that you go out at um, is an anchor that signals a lot of things to, to buyers and so on. So anyway... The research shows, I believe, that the vast majority of people pick a real estate agent and then say, okay, uh, I like you. What do you think we should sell it for? And what I did was very simply rounded up. This was, uh, this was a house up in the middle of the boondocks in the Catskills. I rounded up three different real estate agents, and I told them all, listen, I'm not necessarily giving you this property to sell, but I'd like you to approach it as if you are selling it because this is a big deal for me and I want to know what price you would set it at. So come look at the house, ask me any questions you want, kick any tires you want, and then let me see. And the um, one, uh, so three different ones came back and the range 
um, I think if I recall correctly, the low the low one was about one hundred ninety thousand dollars. Then one was, I think, $425,000. Oh, my gosh. And one was $610,000. So a range of more than $400,000 between the top and the bottom. Which, well, because which, the, the 610, you can argue, they, they, are, they had different strategies. The 610 strategy was, oh, let's uh, make him greedy and he'll hire us. The 191, the 190 strategy was, I could definitely sell this for yeah, at least 190 right. and I'll get my, my commission, which is like $12,000. Right. So, and the commission difference, even though obviously the difference between 190 and 425 is a lot, if the realtor, him or herself, is only pocketing about 3% individually, sorry, not even 3%, 1.5%, let's say there's a 6% commission total that gets split between buyer and seller. So the seller is getting 3% for the firm, but then the individual broker might get half of that, which would be 1.5%. So one, it's only 1.5% of the incremental value that they're getting, which is not the same as getting an additional $225,000, $225,000. Thirty thousand dollars, right? So it's a, sp a speed thing. He like if someone could s trivially make like two thousand, three thousand dollars, as opposed to like work really hard and make six thousand dollars. Right. It's a it's a huge difference. So what I did is I looked at their quote data, which was uh, I'm almost embarrassed to call it data since it was plainly guesswork, and then I looked at everything else in the market, and then what I did I also looked at. Um, the kind of buyer that I was expecting would buy this house because this was a place where th this was like um, it's a house that easily someone could have lived in year round, but there, it was quite a strong weekend and vacation population, mostly coming up from New York City. And this house I thought had pretty good appeal for someone coming up from New York City like I was and I had been. So I thought I'm actually pricing it not according to local price necessarily, but according to what someone from New York will will want to pay for it. And I ended up going for a price that was kind of in the middle, but I actually used the broker who'd priced it low because I actually preferred that broker. So I said to that person, I said, I think your bid is nuts. I think you're trying to steal $200,000. Not steal, but remove $200,000. Well, yeah, steal it from me and give it to the buyer. Yeah. And I think you're totally, totally, totally nuts. So just so you know, here's the price I want you to market it at. If you're willing to do that, I'm happy to give you the job because I preferred that person by a lot. And that's what I did, and that worked out. So that was a case where you try to find a kind of creative way to you know, lead, to come up with the number first. But in a negotiation where I'm trying to sell whatever, a property, a book, a movie or something, if the convention allows, I'd always rather be the person to set the anchor. Because unless there's a huge information asymmetry, unless there's really something I don't know about, you know, the value or the market or something, I think I'm going to always get closer to my preference. We'll finally finish answering a question, but right after this. Today's question of the day is sponsored by Warby Parker, a company offering a new concept in eyewear, contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion-forward. Warby Parker believes that glasses should be viewed as a fashion accessory, but they should not cost as much as a plane ticket or a new iPhone. So what did they do? They decided to sell their glasses starting at $95, including prescription lenses. They offer great-looking prescription sunglasses as well, starting at $175. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door. 
where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home and get feedback from friends, family, colleagues, mailman, everyone whose opinion you care about. You can try the frames for five days before sending them back using a free prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. It is 100% free, and it's so easy, a dog could do it. And for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Remember, Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around. So head to warbyparker.com question to begin your free home try-on experience today. That's warbyparker.com question. What about you? When you sell things... You sold companies. Yeah, I try to set the anchor, but here's what I find is the most effective strategy is that you agree in advance uh, what a proper formula is for valuing the asset you're selling because everything has values that are up in the air. That's why we all try to negotiate. So you agree to a formula first. You negotiate first on the formula. Like, oh, we should look at all the similar houses in the area and average them together and that's what we should sell this house for. And if he says, okay, then you could start doing your research. The idea being you've already done your research so you know what the value is and you know it's what you want and you pick kind of the mathematical equation that you know will favor you, get them to agree to that mathematical equation without them having already done the research and then the negotiation's over before it's even begun. So I find that to be an effective technique. Does that work? Did that work for you when you were selling companies? When you sold Stock Picker, let's no, say? No, it, it actually failed for me because the other side did that technique and it worked very effectively for them. Is that how you learned that technique? Yes. Oh, so that so, was worth it. So I've seen that twice where, no, 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 we should, let's just, it's all friendly. Let's just, uh, we all, you can agree to this. So you, 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 it's the classic thing. It gets me to a couple of yeses. Like, well, you clearly are valued based on, you know, what your revenues and profits are. And let's look at, we should probably look at what other companies with similar revenues and profits in the industry are valued at. And then let's do this and this. Do, would you agree? Like that seems logical. And it always seemed rational to me. Like it was like a series of easy yeses. And I'm like, yeah, that seems rational yeah. to me. And then I and then I would think to myself, boy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Cause I would think what these numbers are, but then he would have better research on what the numbers actually were. Yeah. And I remember just being devastated by the result, but I had already agreed. So I couldn't really not that I wanted to back out of any deal, but but it was uh, I thought this was the best I could get, given that I would rationally agreed to a, a what seemed like a logical equation to figuring out what my company was worth. It's also interesting to look at arenas where there are repeat negotiators. So, for instance, a book agent, right? If you're a book agent in New York and you have clients, the publishers that you're selling to, they're almost your clients as well because you're selling to them over and over and over. It's a relatively small universe. So there's, right. you know, whatever, five big publishers left anymore. And maybe if you add up all the publishers that a major agent is going to sell to, it's, I don't know, 50 publishers, something like that. And the fact is, is that if you m- repeatedly make deals on behalf of your writer clients that turn out to be too high, that you're stealing from the publishers, then you're going to have a reputation as an agent who exploits the publishers and will probably, probably, I say, 
be harder to keep doing repeat business. So I think you see a really different negotiating tactic uh, among those who are repeat customers. So like if I'm a if I'm not just a guy who has a house and wants to sell it, but if I'm someone who has a small business of buying homes and restoring them and then selling them, and I have a relationship with a real estate agent in that regard, then I'm going to have a totally different you know way of looking at it. But then also, I think the the additional factor there is I'm going to have more expertise in valuing it. It's surprising to me how I mean, look, you know me. I don't know anything about business. About you say real that, business. but I don't. I don't agree. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I run my very, 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 very small business fairly well, and that's about the only extent of my experience. But I have no experience with real or big business. But when I look at the valuations that big firms come up with when they acquire other big firms, and then how often, two or three or four years later they're jettisoning those firms for a quarter or a tenth or 20th of their, of their value, I have to think that there's just a whole lot of bluster and idiocy posing as expertise in the realm of, of corporate valuation. Yeah, I think I think what happens with corporations is that companies want to get bigger, so they think they'll get bigger by buying, and they want, and that's like a shortcut. And like you say, there's a lot of bluster and like, oh, kind of smoke and mirrors when other companies value their their themselves to sell for an inflated price. I think almost all acquisitions don't work because you lose the entrepreneurial spirit of the management, the founders, once they become employees, you know, six level, six layers down from the CEO in some bigger corporation. So I think most of those, I don't even know why companies get bought and sold. Well, on the other hand, you could act that big firms like that are just acting with the same spirit that any VC firm will act at, which is that we're going to fund 50 companies and probably five of them will have moderate success or higher and three of those five will be really successful. And if one of them is a home run beyond all the, forget about home run, it'd be like five grand slams at once, then it makes the investment worth it. So I can imagine that for, you know, whatever, maybe Verizon buying Yahoo is not, who knows if that's the right example that might on paper right now look like, you know, I don't even know whether it's way too expensive or way too cheap. I have no idea. All I know is that the people who are supposed to be really, really, really good at this they seem to screw up a lot, but like I said, it may be the idea. They may just be having create. They may just be amassing a diversified portfolio with the hopes that one out of the ten will pay off well, and that may be really smart in the end. But if you look at big companies that are built on agglomeration and conglomeration, like a GE or a Tata, or whatever, uh, it seems as though lately. They're having more success in HP in the last 20 years in tech space. It seems though lately they're having much more um, success, if you want to call it that, by disaggregating and, and spinning back off afterwards. I'm going to throw one more piece of advice in, which I think is really important, which is at the beginning of a negotiation, having a deadline for when the negotiation needs to be finished. So no, So basically you're stating up front, uh, this is important to me, but it's important to me that it's done by a certain time or I have to make other choices. So it implies you have other choices. And B, if they really want to do a deal with you, your deadline's going to be just as important to them as it is to you. And do you enforce that deadline with a fee, for instance? Uh, do you uh, ever, have you ever said to someone, I really want to do this deal with you and you have exclusive access to the deal for 30 days at a price of X dollars? No, it depends on the negotiation, but I have it in situations where if it's not done in 30 days, I, the deal's off. So, right, but it's costless to them, correct? 
Well, except for the fact that if they really want to do a deal with you, they'll meet the deadline and they won't call your bluff. They could think you're bluffing that you'll continue on. But the whole idea of two people doing a partnership is that both sides want to do one. You're never going to get a good deal anyway if they're willing to blow past your deadline. So I think often people are afraid to give deadlines because they think that, oh, they're not so important and the other side will just run right through the deadline and ignore it or only do a deal at the last minute because they think they could take advantage of the deadline. I think the reality is if someone is serious about doing a partnership with you, they're going to take the deadline seriously. All right, let me ask you one last question on this front. Here, I'm drawing a pie, okay? That's a pie. What kind of pie? Like a, a uh, rhubarb gonna, pie? That's so weird. I was going to say what strawberry is, rhubarb. Let's say we have a strawberry rhubarb pie here. And this pie, uncut at this moment, represents all the deals and all the negotiations that James Altucher's ever been involved in. Going back from maybe your seven-year-old lemonade stand days. I have no idea, right? What share of them would you say were, from your perspective, ultimately fair deals in which both or more all partners had a pretty um, fair perspective and cut? What share would you say James was the exploiter? And what share would you say James was exploited? I would say I was never the exploiter, um, not because... Um, so fair and so generous and so giving. <laughs> um, it's just, I don't think, I think I learned the hard way about negotiation by being exploited more often than not. I think most of the time it was either fair or I was exploited. And, and, and in the cases where I was exploited, I, it ended up being a renegotiation later on just because I had to renegotiate or else not continue. Uh, you know, those you have to take very seriously. Well, having been exploited more than you exploited yourself, has your appetite for exploiting others increased? No, never, because it's never happy. You never want to be, this is just a life thing in general. You never want to be around people who have your worst interests at heart. Like they do better when you do worse. So whether that's a business partnership or a relationship or a friendship or whatever. So, uh, and it's particularly even more true when there's a legal aspect involved, like in a legal agreement, a partnership. So I have no interest ever in exploiting. I think. So if, if I said to you, James, but 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 uh, but defining what fair is, because fair is a range, and defining what fair is, it's the same as anchoring. You want to anchor at the upper end of fair, where you benefit and they also benefit, but where you benefit as much as possible. So if I say to you, James, that shirt you're wearing today, which is a lovely kind of faint, nuanced checkerboard pattern. I got a stain. I have a stain on it. I hadn't seen the stain. Well, now that I've seen the stain, I'm going to give you three cents for that shirt. How do you feel about that? Take it. Then I only have 14 items in my whole life instead of 15. (laughs) Stay tuned. In mere seconds, you'll hear a sneak peek of our next question of the day. But first... Thanks again to Warby Parker, a company offering a new concept in eyewear, contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion-forward. Warby Parker's designer glasses look great and are priced starting at just $95, including prescription lenses for regular glasses and $175 for prescription sunglasses. So head to warbyparker.com question to order your free home try-ons today. Choose the five frames you'd like to try on Mail the frames back, choose your favorite pair to have your prescription added to, and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free with free shipping all around. Visit warbyparker.com question to begin your free home try-on experience today. 
on the next question of the day. Many years ago, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, I went to your 50th birthday party. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was fun. I had a lot of fun there. Um, but let me ask you a question. Why wasn't I invited to your kids' bar mitzvahs? We're friends, right? Oh, interesting. So-